Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, the show where I, your rabbi, reveals how the world really works. Thanks for being part of the show, and thank you for all you have done in the last little while to tell other people about the show and promote the show. Much appreciated. Well, we're just about ready for takeoff, so now would be a good time to encourage you to Put your seat back up to the fully upright position and stow your tray table safely in the back of the seat in front of you. And uh, if by any chance you are intending to reach a destination where you will be massaged with warm butter, now would be a good time to get off this flight. And if you yearn to sit back in a relaxed posture and be a tennis ball floating down the gutter of life, then again, this is the wrong destination for you. You need to get off this flight and find one going to where you really want to be. But for everybody else who wants to be disturbed and troubled, by every, for everybody else who seeks to know how the world really works, even if that is not the way that you wish it worked, well, you're in the right place. I'm your right rabbi, and we should move right on. And talking about planes, I'm one of those people who loves talking to the people next to me on a plane. Not the whole flight, but I generally like finding out a little bit about other people. And I have got into the habit of not saying, what do you do for a living, which sort of, first of all, I don't like the tone of it. The tone of it is selfish. And uh, and also it has a, a sort of slightly nosy kind of uh, feel to it. But uh, what I do say is, and how do you serve your fellow citizens? Or what do you do for humanity? And funnily enough, almost always, whenever I ask this, people always start telling me about their charitable work. Oh, every two weeks I work in the local soup kitchen. I uh, Somebody else says, uh, oh, I work in a homeless shelter. I'm doing something to try and help the homeless. Oh, I raise money for our local whatever it is. And it does not occur to them that when I ask what do you do to serve your fellow citizens? How do you serve humanity? I'm actually asking about their occupation, their career, their profession, how they make a living. That's what I'm really asking. And it just serves to remind me that people are uncomfortable about making money they feel awkward about making money. They don't believe that it's serving or doing things for other people. They believe it's taking things. And so they don't want to talk about that. When I say, what do you do to serve humanity? Oh, it's all the charitable work I do, and it's all the ministry work I do, or it's the whatever it is. But nobody says, oh, uh, I'm, uh, I run a drugstore. That's what I do for humanity because they think to themselves, oh, well, I'm doing that for myself. But it's not really like that. And until we get a clear, thorough, accurate understanding of money and the relationship we have to it as human beings, we are going to be handicapped in our own goals of creating wealth. And that's right. Making money or creating wealth is not the same as taking money. Taking money is what somebody does when he walks into a 7-Eleven convenience store with a Glock pistol and tells the clerk to hand over the money. That's called taking money. When uh, the government comes to you and uh, extracts from you confiscatory rates of taxation way beyond what is a moral and divinely set level of about 20%, all beyond that, no, that's taking your money. 
but when we engage in voluntary, transparent, free market transactions, then we are creating wealth. We are actually making money. And so people sometimes feel, particularly if people are religious, God-fearing, Bible-believing, people who are trying to be good and decent people feel that making money is sort of the, (laughs) the kind of thing you do when you hope God isn't watching. But it's one of, you, you don't want God. This is one of these times where you're doing something you you just assume God was not watching, right? Making money, I'm I'm acting in this selfish, greedy way. I'm just trying to take care of my own needs. Well, what a shame that is, because nothing could be further from the truth. That is such an inaccurate. It's such a distorted picture of the truth about money. It is really. Uh, quite extraordinary. So let us talk about the fact that money is, in essence, a spiritual thing. Money is spiritual. That's right. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, first of all, I mean that uh, if money were physical, then like any physical object, a book or a banjo Um, it can only be in one point on what physicists call the space-time continuum. What that means is that my book or my banjo can only be in one place at any particular time. Now, my book can be on my desk this morning, and it can be um, on my dining room table this evening, right? My banjo can be in its case in a closet in the evening, and it can be out while I'm practicing it in the morning. So if the time is different and the place is different, that's fine. But an object can only be in one place time, in, or if in one place at one time, uh, that's just a fact of physics, And so uh, if my object, my banjo, is on my table in front of me, and then I see it's moved and it's now uh, in your hand, then it's clear that you took this from me. Because if it's with you, it's no longer with me. It cannot be. So the important thing to understand is that if we think money is as physical as a book or a banjo, in other words, it's tangible, it's something you can actually hold on to, well then, if you have it and I don't, you certainly took it from me or from someone else who didn't have it, because it can only be in one place at a time. And so as a result of that, if... um, if I have money and then I don't, but you have a whole bunch of money, well, that's just a little bit like if, uh, if I have uh, uh, five bottles of wine and you have three bottles of wine and somebody else has seven bottles of wine. And uh, so altogether, we got 15 bottles of wine. And then we look and there's a fellow sitting near us who's now got 15 bottles of wine in front of him and all our wine is gone well it's pretty obvious he took it from us if money is physical like books and banjos and bottles well then if somebody has a bit of it then he probably took it from someone else and the only correct response is redistribution but if on the other hand money might be spiritual, then that's quite different because things that are spiritual uh, can be in more than one place at a time. Let me give you an example. Uh, An idea is spiritual. If I think of a business proposition and I tell it to you, now we both know it, and you now have this, this business proposition, but you haven't taken anything from me. I don't have any less of it. Or how about a tune? Now, a banjo might be physical, 
but the tune I play, you know, what happens if I teach you the tune of dueling banjos? You never knew it before, but now you do. And now you walk away whistling the tune. You haven't taken anything away from me, right? And light is a little bit like that as well in the sense that uh, if we're all sitting at our own table in a somewhat dark restaurant and uh, there's an unlit candle on each table, I leave the restaurant, I come back with a nice bright blazing candle and I stop by each of your tables and I light the candle on your table and then I go back to my table. And now we're sitting in a restaurant that is brightly lit by warm candlelight and everybody thanks me, but you didn't take anything from me. I've still got my lit candle, just as I had when I walked in in the first place. But light serves as a very valuable metaphor for a spiritual object. It's one of the reasons that it's the first thing we see spoken about uh, at the beginning of the story of creation in Genesis. It is the transition point between spiritual and physical, and that's one of the reasons that an idea is often thought of in light terms. What an enlightened concept. Um, you know, what a bright idea that is, or how bright you are. Uh, the idea here, again, is, is that if I share a business idea with somebody else, then that person has got something that has is in no way diminishes what I have. We both have it. We might decide to collaborate on it. Or perhaps it's an idea that several people can execute at the same time. But however it works, a spiritual thing isn't diminished. What socialists get wrong is they assume that nothing in the world that matters cannot be seen or touched or weighed or measured. And so they are completely uncomfortable with the idea that money is spiritual. They utterly reject it. And if money is physical, then it means that you must have taken it from somewhere else if you've got some. And the only fair thing is to get it back from you in the form of redistribution. And this is completely logical. Uh, people who believe this, are they have made their fundamental error long ago in terms of whether spirituality exists in the world. This is one of the reasons that irreligious societies, secular societies, uh, atheistic societies, societies moving uh, further and further down the dark road of secularism uh, also become more and more economically dysfunctional because they're making this fundamental error that money is physical. And you can't, not only can't you build a functioning national economy on the mistake that money is physical, but neither can you or me or all the other people, we cannot make money as long as we are laboring under this mass misapprehension that money is uh, actually a physical phenomenon. And so when we realize that money is spiritual, and it can't be touched. Well, oh, yes, it can. What about those metallic discs clinking in my pocket? All right, fine. That is money. You're right. And what is the value of that money? Is Does it have anything to do with the silver content, which has long ago been taken out of uh, certainly currency of the United States? Uh, no. It has to do with a social convention. We write on that a metallic disc, uh, 25 cents, and we call it a quarter, and we've got a rough idea of its value. But here's the funny thing. That value seems to vary. What that quarter can buy today is not the same as what it could buy yesterday or the day before. And we have no idea what it'll be able to buy tomorrow. So again, you may be able to hold a quarter in your hand, but I would explain you're still not holding money. Well, okay, then it's the colored disc, the colored strips of paper in my wallet. No, it's not that either. How about uh, if I write a check? Is that money? Um, n well, yes and no. Uh, okay, fine. It's the orientation of iron oxide molecules on the brown ma magnetic strip on the back of my credit card. That's money. Well, yeah, no. 
Um, okay, how about if uh, I shake hands with you and I say I'll give you $10 on Friday? Have we just put money into play? Well, yeah. So which is it of all these things? Well, it's, it's sort of all of them at the same time, um, and that's precisely the point. It's all of them and none of them. Money is something which, well, let's put it this way. If the very last human being vanished off the surface of the earth, is money left behind? Well, that's a little bit like going back to the banjo tune. Uh, is there music? Let's say the last person on earth leaves an MP3 playing away and he vanishes. Now, there's nobody, no human beings left on earth. Is there music? Let's say he feeds it through a loudspeaker and it's blasting away before he leaves the planet. He leaves the planet. Now, you might be tempted to say that, yes, there is music. But I would submit for your careful consideration the refutation of that idea. And that is that what he's left playing on the planet before he departed causes vibrating air molecules. But that's not music. Music only comes into being in between the ears of a human being. The music enters our head, vibrates our, uh, enters our oral canals, vibrates our eardrums and that causes nerve sensations to travel down nerves into the brain which our brain then interprets as a happy tune or a sad tune or whatever sort of music it is but there's no music before it reaches a human soul no not at all when if the last person leaves the planet is there money left on the planet well of course you know, there's piles of gold in Fort Knox and there's currency sitting in the uh, cash registers of uh, shops all up and down Main Street. Sure, there's money left in the world. No, there isn't. There are strips of colored paper. There are metallic discs, but they're not money. Only human beings bestow monetary value on objects or sometimes even just words. I'll pay you $10 on Friday. That's money. But that's only because two human beings who trust one another are functioning. Now, this is terribly important to understand because money and our relationship to money is very irrational. And I've, I've mentioned in the past one of the reasons there are, there are several reasons, but one of the reasons that economics is called the dismal science is because it doesn't behave like any known science. And you know why that is? It's because people are irrational when it comes to money. That's the hard thing that people do not always understand. The fact is that um, uh, when it comes to how people relate to money, either in what they're willing to do to acquire it or uh, what they're willing, how much of it they're willing to give in order to get other things in its place, uh, very often there are irrational assumptions, right? That happens all the time. People do that all the time. Let me give you an example. Um, let's say you go to a car dealer. And this, uh, and and you tell him the car you want. You've done all your homework. You've searched on the web, and you say this is the car I would like to buy, and uh, and I want it specifically with this upgraded sound system. So he says, um, he says, well, uh, he says I can get you that exact car you want in the color you want with exactly the sound system you want. It'll take me three days to get it here. However, right there on the lot is the same car, same color, but it's got a better sound system. Uh, it's $300 more than the one you want, but you can drive it home today. Well, it's well known in the car industry that in that scenario, most buyers will take that deal. They'll pay the extra $300 and drive their new car home now. But imagine if the same dealer said, ah, okay, fine, I'm really sorry. 
we do not have the car you want with the sound system you want. We don't even have anything close. But I can get exactly what you want in 33 days' time. However, a model that is exactly the same in every respect, except it's got an even better upgraded sound system for $300 more, that you can have in 30 days. Now we know that the overwhelming majority of buyers will rather wait 33 days to get the exact one they wanted rather than get the different one three days earlier. This would be an example of irrationality because you've already demonstrated that you are willing to save three days and pay $300 more. So why is that only true when it's a delay between zero and three days and not for a delay between 30 and 33 days? On paper and mathematically, that makes absolutely no sense. But I know that that's probably what I would do. And it may even be what you would do as well. Uh, it's irrational, but human beings are more spiritual than we are physical. I cannot explain why I would take that choice rationally and mathematically. Spiritually, I have no trouble. I can explain it very easily on a spiritual level, easily. But economics as it's taught in kindergartens, which is what I call colleges and universities because they infantilize people, uh, kindergartens like pretending that economics has nothing to do with a spiritual reality. I should point out that one of the great masters of economics who always gets quoted, of course, is Adam Smith. You know, specialization and everything. And this is from an amazing book he wrote, published in the same year of America's Declaration of Independence in 1776. Uh, it was called the, the Wealth of Nations. But what very few people know is that well before that, Adam Smith wrote a book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And it was a book about spiritual reality. And so... I want you to at least be aware, even if at kindergarten they told you differently, and even if other people tell you differently, I want you to be aware of a secular bias in the culture that is going to try and conceal from you the essential timeless truth that anything having to do with money is much more a spiritual matter than a physical or material matter. That is just how it really works. If you think about uh, even uh, coffee, when a certain international coffee chain came into existence, and until they advertise on this show, they don't get their name mentioned, that's all there is to it, but a certain international coffee chain came up with this incredible idea of, hey, why don't we charge people $3 for a cup of coffee? Well, I'll tell you why we shouldn't do that. It's because on every second street corner, there's a diner where you can get a cup of coffee for 45 cents. That's why we shouldn't start a company selling people coffee for $3. Ah, yes. But how about if we can change people's perception of what we call an anchor price. As long as people have an anchor price of 45 cents for a cup of coffee, they're not going to pay $3 for a cup of coffee. But what happens if we can persuade them that this is something totally different? This is nothing like the coffee, the cup of coffee in the corner diner. No, this is an entirely different experience. This is going to be sustainable coffee, ethically harvested by noble farmers on the, um, on the slopes of Mount Kilimanjaro in East Africa. And it's going to be made for you before your astonished eyes by highly skilled coffee specialists and it is going to be handed to you as if it is something of enormous value. And what's more, 
We'll even give you a place to sit down and relax. And we're not going to hurry up and chase you out. Oh, okay. So now this has nothing to do with the product I used to get from the corner diner for 45 cents. You have made me switch my anchor price. Is this completely rational and mathematical and scientific? No, a cup of coffee is a cup of coffee. But you see, we are spiritual beings. And I'm sure I don't have to tell you that our emotions are part of our spiritual reality. They are not part of our physical or material reality. And uh, those of us who are aware of areas of holistic health, we understand that what goes on in our soul and our minds shapes what happens with our bodies. And we all know that when uh, uh, placebos work, it's astonishing because mathematically, physically, materially, they shouldn't work. But you see, people are spiritual. And so what I'm going to finish trying to demonstrate, and this is more than demonstrate, because this information that money is spiritual and that people's interaction with money is spiritual, I could tell you in just a few minutes, in 10 or 15 minutes, we're done. But I want to do a bit better than that, because nothing in your life or my life changes while ideas are in our heads. Our lives change when ideas migrate those 14 inches from our brains to our hearts. That's what changes everything. When we take action, it's nearly always because our heart and our emotion impels us to take that action. Uh, and I... Uh, for the moment, I'm not going to take the time to give you examples, but there's so many, right? Uh, I, I myself laughed not that long ago where uh, I told a young man about a, a young woman I wanted him to meet, and I I didn't say anything about, he, he kept on asking me, what does she look, you know, he's male, right? So he wanted, what does she look like? What does she look like? You have a picture, no picture, and uh, I can't tell you what she looks like. Uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, you know. How I think she looks may not be how you think she looks. Uh, it's different, so let's not waste time talking about how she looks, but uh, let's talk about why I believe she would make you the most amazing wife. Now, this guy wants to get married. He's serious about it. So wouldn't you have thought that if his rabbi said to him, please pick up the phone, here's the phone number, call her up and ask her if she would go out and have lunch with you or coffee with you or whatever it was you'd like to meet her, and nothing happened. Couldn't, he, just didn't, he just didn't act because the thought was in his head. But I'll tell you when a change, and by the way, I think if you have been a devotee of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show, if you are a frequent flyer on this airline, then you already know that emotional input comes through the eyes. Intellectual input comes through the ears. Material goes straight to the head, but what we see through the eyes goes to the heart. It's emotional. You, you know that already. And so you won't be surprised that um, a few weeks later I hear from him and he says, oh, she's incredible. We've been on a date and we're going out on another date. I say, oh, that's, that's wonderful. When did you call up? Called up last week. You made it. Yeah, made a date. It was great. And we're going to be going out again. I said, tell me something. Um, I want to know the truth here. Uh, you actually saw her either in synagogue or a photograph of her before you called her, didn't you? Between the time I told you about her and the time you made a call, you either, anyway, he was going all colors of the rainbow already. I knew I was right. So I said, so between the time I told you about her and the time you phoned her up, you actually saw her, didn't you? And he looked down at his shoes and he said in a soft voice, yes, I get it. Of course. I do understand. Uh, we act when emotions are at work. Uh, 
And so it is very important to give across an idea in a way that impacts not only the head but also the heart. That is what your rabbi is a specialist at doing. I don't know if you've ever read the Ayn Rand books um, that depict a certain view of economics. I'm thinking of uh, uh, books like Atlas Shrugged is probably the, the, the most important one of her classics. The economic principles that she expresses there, the ideas about money, how long do you think it would tell you, take you to state them? If you knew the book well, uh, do you know how long it would take me to tell you the financial and economic beliefs of Ayn Rand as articulated in her book, Atlas Shrugged? I could do it in less than a page. I'd write it up. It'd be three or 400 words done. So if that's the case, why did Ayn Rand turn it into a big book called Atlas Shrugged? And that is because a story, my friends, speaks to the heart. Facts speak to the head, but a story speaks to the heart. And the reason why it is that today, decades and decades after Ayn Rand lived, there are still people getting together in clubs and societies and groups talking about her economics and talking about Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead and her other books because she turned people on with the stories, not the facts. The story gets to the heart. The facts, not so. And, um, and so it was when you think about Uncle Tom's Cabin. How, long, how many words would it take you to write the basic principle, right, of racial equality? Right? How hard is that? Yeah, it, wouldn't take, it wouldn't take a page. And yet, she wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, right? Hundreds of pages. Why? Because she wanted to change. And people change when their hearts are engaged, not just when their heads are engaged. And so, um, if you are in sales, and yes, hello, if you are in sales, and that means you and you and you and me, who does it exclude? The only people who are not in sales are people who are tenured professors at American kindergartens and Supreme Court justices. In other words, if you cannot be fired, right, then you're not in sales. If you do not have to worry about making a profit, if you do not have to worry about revenue, then you're not in business. You're not in sales. But for all the rest of us, you're a teacher, uh, you're a small business person, whatever you are, you are in sales even if you don't realize it. And that, not realizing it, might just be one of the biggest obstacles to progress in your financial trajectory. And so we've got to make sure that we understand that emotions, the spiritual side of things, play a huge role in the financial decisions that we human beings make. And then when we realize that money itself is also spiritual, and I tried to demonstrate to you that money is spiritual by showing you that only physical things, only physical things are in one place only at a time. But I can teach you a tune and then we both have it. I can share a light. I'm smoking a cigar and you come along and you want a light for your cigar and I give you a light from my cigar, no problem. My cigar is in no way diminished by the fact that I lit your cigar. Uh, that is a spiritual transaction. And so why do I say that this shows that money is, in fact, a spiritual transaction? Well, it's, it's, it's very simple. It's very simple, you see, because if I sell you something, let's imagine 
that I have my bottle of wine and um, I bought this from a vineyard for, shall we say, $50. Now, just so you are aware, we all have our vices, we all have our weaknesses, and uh, there's no reason for me to make you think any less of me by telling you what my vices and my weaknesses are. But I will tell you that $50 bottles of wine just isn't one of them. Uh, Susan Lappin and I, not only do do we not buy $50 bottles of wine, but if somebody poured a drink for us from a $50 bottle of wine, I don't think we would know. We wouldn't realize it. And if somebody gave us a $50 bottle of wine, we would be incredibly appreciative of the gift. And what we would do is we'd carefully put it away and we will rewrap it and re-gift it to somebody we know who really appreciates good wines. Now, for all I know, some of you are probably saying, <laughs> he thinks $50 a bottle is a good wine. Uh, you got to go to at least $300 a bottle. Look, I, I, don't even, I don't even relate to this kind of stuff. I just, I don't get it. I'm not saying that I don't have any vices. I'm not saying that I don't have any indulgences on which I spend money that you probably would not want to do and wouldn't even understand. Thank God we live in a world of true diversity, not just diversity of skin color. Please do me a favor, you lefties. Uh, but true diversity of human beings so as that I can live in a city and I can find so many different stores that cater to so many different needs. And within a store, I am confronted by such a bewildering array of choices. What a blessing is capitalism. What a blessing is a system that really does understand the spiritual nature of money. And so back to my example, Uh, let us say, what did I say? I bought this bottle of wine from a vineyard for $50. And and so on my little uh, Lappin financial uh, statement, I list this asset. I list this bottle of wine as a $50 asset. That's what I paid for it. But wait a second, maybe I can get more for it. I don't know. One day, all of a sudden, you come along and you offer me $100 for my bottle of wine. Little do I know that since the time I bought it, the, uh, the products of this vineyard have appreciated and has had another year or two of, of aging, which I, I think is supposed to be a good thing for wine. But again, um, you're talking to a little bit of a, what's the opposite of a weenophile? A Philistine, I think. Um, and so, At any rate, you offer me $100 for the bottle of wine. I am absolutely delighted. I take the $100 and I quickly go to my little spreadsheet and I write down there has been a $50 increase in the net worth of Rabbi Daniel Lappin. I previously had a bottle of wine worth $50. I've now got a $250 bills and I now have $100 instead. Whoopee, that's good news. Uh, Meanwhile, how about you? Previously, you had two $50 bills in your pocket, which you no longer have. You now, long, you now have a bottle of wine. What is its value? Well, there are very good reasons not to employ gap accounting principles in this little calculation, because we are really going for the essence. And the essence of it is that I want to figure out what is the value you place on that bottle. I know that it has to be at least $100 or more, otherwise you wouldn't have done the transaction. Nobody put a gun to your head, so you were improving your life circumstance by buying that bottle of wine, were you not? And so I uh, engage my friend to go along and try and buy it from you. And he goes up to you and he says, hi, I see you got this bottle of wine from this uh, great vineyard. Uh, I know that's a nice bottle of wine. Uh, How about I give you $100 for it? Now, you know what he's going to say. He'd say, absolutely not. I mean, it's a very good bottle of wine. I'm happy to know that you too have an eye for fine wine. But uh, no, he says, okay, $150. Now, I don't know how much of a wine lover you really are, but you're probably going to say to yourself, yeah, you know what? 
I waited a long time. I found this. It's not worth it. Fine, another $50 maybe, but then I don't have this bottle of what? $200 he offers you. 250 Okay, at some point, he's going to hit a number that you're going to say, you know what? It's stupid of me not to sell a bottle of wine for that figure. So we know it's more than 100 It's probably more than 150 It's probably less than 1000 But somewhere in there is a number that you... And not every human being, uniquely you, will sell the bottle of wine that you just bought from me. And so whatever that figure is for you is the correct figure on your financial statement. Now remember, prior to the transaction, you had two $50 bills in your pocket. And you now have a bottle of wine which you've just sold for $150. Or could if you wished. At any rate, that's what it's worth to you. So you've now got the equivalent of three $50 notes in your pocket. And so look what's happened to you as a result of your economic interaction with another human being, namely me. You had $250. You've now got $350. Your financial statement now shows $150. My financial statement went from $50 to $100. And here we've got a situation where I handed something to you, a bottle, you handed something to me, namely 50, 250 notes, and we're both better off than we were before. This is not possible in a physical transaction, because in a physical transaction, if I give you my book or my bottle or my banjo, you've now got it and I don't have it. And that's why socialists believe in redistribution of wealth. They have to, because in their worldview, where there is no spirituality, then you have that money because I don't. It moves from me to you. But in a spiritually real transaction, which includes real money, everything changes. The transaction benefits us both. Since the socialist doesn't accept the existence of a spiritual reality, he doesn't accept the existence of a transaction of this kind, and it is therefore essentially banned. The production of, of profit through private interactions between two individuals is not part of the communist or Marxist tradition at all, but it is in ours. And so making money can only happen in an environment that is open to spiritual realities. It's also uh, true that a physical object can be damaged only by proximity, right? If I'm going to damage your banjo, I need to come up right close to it and break it. But how about if I try and, God forbid, try and damage your reputation? Do I have to be anywhere near you to do that? Of course not. All I do is start talking to a few people about you, and it's done. Here's the rule. Physical objects can only be damaged by proximity. Spiritual objects can be damaged from afar. Can I impact your money? Sure I can. I don't have to be anywhere near you. If I can, at a distance, reduce market confidence, I have lowered the value of your money. What you can buy with your money has dropped. The financial value of your assets has plummeted. All I've got to do is persuade all the people near you in your financial orbit that things are going from bad to worse and uh, things are very bad. People stop spending. People start hoarding. Uh, the, the value of money changes, and all of a sudden, you find that you can't sell your car, you can't sell your house, because nobody's buying anything. I've dramatically hurt your money, and I haven't even come near you. I might not even know you, and that shows that money is spiritual. And the third and final example of why money is spiritual, or how you can always know that money is spiritual, is a general rule, and that is that anything that Rabbi Daniel Lappin's pet gorilla does not understand is spiritual. Does 
your pet gorilla understand when I sit down to eat dinner? You bet he understands. And his tongue comes out of his mouth and he looks at me with those hungry eyes. And that's one of the reasons that ancient Jewish wisdom imposes an obligation on a human being to feed his animals before he has dinner himself if the animals will see him eating. Because it's just cruel. The animal is apparently incapable of understanding that it's going to get fed in half an hour. Right now, the animal understands you eating. He sees you engaging in a physical activity, and he is hungry. And it makes him even more hungry, I imagine. But um, the animal, my pet gorilla, totally understands any physical activity. If I allowed my pet gorilla into my bathroom to see me relieving myself, I'm pretty sure he'd have a good idea of what's going on. Right? That gorilla has basic intelligence, and uh, he can relate what I'm doing to what he does. He gets it. Relieving myself, a totally physical activity. No problem at all. How about when my gorilla sees me sitting down in a chair in front of the fireplace, reading the newspaper? I hold this piece of paper in front of my eyes. You can almost see my gorilla's brow furrow up in utter bewilderment. He doesn't get it. That's right. He simply doesn't get it because that is a spiritual activity, not a physical activity. Reading, physical activity. How about if he watches you and me engage in a financial transaction? We first of all talk to each other, and uh, and then I might hand over uh, $50 or $100 to you, and you might hand the bottle of wine to me, and you can see the the gorilla's forehead is furrowed. He's, a, he's baffled. He has no idea of what is going on. Reading a newspaper is a spiritual activity. Engaging in a financial transaction is a spiritual activity. That's right. And therefore, the gorilla cannot understand it. My pet gorilla understands all physical activities. He understands no spiritual activities. And anything to do with money is, in fact, spiritual. Now, we've already established that in all probability, in one way or another, you are in sales. Uh, You want to persuade people of something. You want to sell your services or your goods, whatever it is. Uh, even Even if you're a teacher, by the way, you have to understand that you are in sales. And one of the things people in sales do is they constantly try to educate themselves quite correctly, to advance themselves. And they will read books about things like the psychology of selling. Well, um, I've tried to explain that although economics is taught as a science in most kindergartens, it really isn't. Because a science has nothing to do with spirituality. Science doesn't cover spirituality. Science doesn't teach about spirituality. And the Bible, religion, and spirituality do not teach about natural science. They are two separate areas. They're not in conflict with one another, as regular frequent flyers on this airline already know. But uh, uh, but they are separate. In, in that sense, I don't believe that economics should really be taught as a science because there are too many aspects about money that depend on spiritual factors. For instance, one of the very important factors that uh, government economists are constantly dealing with is, you know, average net worth. What are people, what is the value of a household? Uh, How much money have they accumulated? What have they got? Well, we know that, and, and this is one of the most disturbing things in economics, we know already for a fact, that you can have two human beings who have exactly the same job, the same skills, the same age, the same history, they can even look the same, whatever you want, and they can both make the same amount of money for the same amount of time. And at the end of that period, one of them is worth, you know, a lot of money, and the other is in debt, owns nothing. 
And this is enormously bothersome to economics because economics as a science, as it is taught in kindergarten, is that uh, uh, these things are measurable. Human beings are like machines. And if you feed in the same data to two identical machines, you'll get out the same result. And so if you let two identical human beings uh, make the same amount of money at the same kind of job and live the same kind of life in the same kind of neighborhood for the same amount of time, at the end of the day, they should both have the same amount of money, and they don't. The fact is that some people can exert the spiritual discipline to save and invest rather than to spend, consume, and indulge. And other people consume, spend, and indulge not only everything they earn, but even more than that, and they end up with debt. So you've got two people who've got exactly the same chances in life. They're given exactly the same abilities, and they're able to make the same amount of money. And yet, equality of outcome is simply unattainable, because one of them says we've got to live very frugally, and we've got to save our money so we can invest it and buy real estate investments and grow that way so as we can develop streams of passive income, and others do not do that. So right off the bat, right there, you've got to see that uh, what happens to money and our interaction with money is spiritual, not physical. If you improve your spiritual understanding and you improve your spiritual strength, you're going to be better with money. That's all there is to it. And one of the great secrets as to why the people of Israel have forever been disproportionately good with money is for a very simple reason or at least I don't want to say the reason, but one of the important reasons is they have a spiritual reality. We, we develop a spiritual awareness with our mother's milk. We're talking about God and the Bible from three years old or two years old. We get it. And that is of enormous assistance in trying to understand how money works and our, the interaction between people and money. So not only do I believe that economics should not be taught at kindergartens as a science, I also don't believe that psychology should be taught as a science in kindergartens, as if two different human beings can be predicted to behave the same way because of psychology, psychological principles or the, the principles of the science of psychology. It's not true! People are unpredictable. Now, wait a second, Rabbi Lappin, you said earlier that if a, uh, a car salesman says you can have this car for $300 more with a better sound system today or get the one you wanted for $300 less than three days' time, most people so well, that's being pretty predictable. Yeah, that's called operating with numbers, averages. Yes, People are much more predictable in large groups. That is absolutely true. If I yell fire and there's somebody in the room with me reading, he'll look up, but he's not going to go racing for the door when I yell fire. He's going to wonder what's the matter with me. But as the old example goes, yelling fire in a crowded theater could very well precipitate a stampede. I know with some degree of certainty what a thousand people are going to do under certain circumstances. I never know what you are going to do, what one person is going to do. Um, political polling, in spite of its calamitous <laughs> failure in the presidential election of 2016, uh, but in general, in general, polling works when uh, manufacturers of products do polls to ascertain how to name a product or how to vary a product or how to package a product, uh, if they ask enough people, that's a pretty good strategy. That'll work. Uh, a focus group. No, you can't just ask your Uncle Ed or your Aunt Agatha. No, 
<laughs> whatever they say is irrelevant. It's only what a lot of people say. And so the notion that you that psychology will tell you what one person... No, that's simply not true. It's not a science at all. Uh, but psychology is just an attempt at mastering the spiritual part of human beings while masquerading its but while camouflaging its spiritual uh, patina in other words since there is a hardcore uh, prejudice against the spiritual in academia the idea is to take the zone of human spirituality and to turn it into a science we call psychology later on we we also speak of psychiatry the fact is that both these fields are much harder to practice if somebody is completely ignorant of spiritual reality. And in exactly the same way, it is much harder to be financially effective if you are spiritually illiterate. It's much, much harder. And so uh, for, for these reasons and, and many others, when I speak about talking of ancient Jewish wisdom as it impacts faith and family and friendship and finance, it's very much to the point because the area of information about which the majority of people are most ignorant having to do with money is its spiritual dimensions that this thing we call money is in itself spiritual and human interactions concerning money all human economic interactions have very strong spiritual dimensions very often uh, you know there's so many examples of this there are people who uh, who will buy a car when every wise financial uh, guidance would be to lease the car but ownership provides a spiritual fillip ownership gives one a kick uh, ownership is a positive thing as a matter of fact one of the th one of the areas that that god disapproves of is ownerlessness right that just happens to be a biblical reality. It's something that emerges from Scripture that uh, God prefers everything to be owned by people and not by all the people because when something is owned by all the people, then it's owned by the government or sometimes it's called public and then nobody owns it. And if you don't believe that, just compare your local FedEx office with your local post office and see which one is cleaner, which one is in better shape, which one is better maintained, which one is staffed by people who actually seem to care. All right. Big difference. Now, obviously, there are exceptions. I don't have to tell you, right? There's the occasional slacker FedEx employee. There's the occasional wonderful, caring, diligent postal employee. I get it, obviously. But again, when we're talking about large numbers of people, we can generalize. It is true, and it really does work. And so, in spite of the fact that I might say uh, to um, you know, one of my coaching clients, perhaps I might say, uh, you know, you 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 got three cars. I'm I'm assuming they're leased. And he says, no, 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 um, I own them. I said, well, you realize that it's costing you more money to do it this way. Uh, didn't your financial advisor tell you to lease the cars? And he says, yes, everyone told me to lease them. He said, but I love cars. These are cars that I really went out of my way to get a specific vehicle with specific features. And I I, you know, I don't know how long I want to keep them, but I don't want to have a lease running out and me telling me I can't keep it any longer. I like owning my car, and ownership makes a difference. Um, again, leasing companies have ways of making sure you look after the car, obviously, but uh, just compare how people treat a rental car with their own car. When last did you take your rental car to the car wash? Uh, 
right? Doesn't happen very often, does it? Because you don't care that much about things that you do not own. This is one of the reasons that God likes ownership, because he knows we will look after things we own, things that are ownerless or things that are owned by the public. Well, they somehow don't get looked after. And God likes an ordered, well-maintained world where people care about their possessions. And all of that is good and wonderful. So, as, as you choose to advance your financial well-being, or somebody in your orbit, friends or family, uh, intends to expand their economic productivity and their fiscal viability. Somebody wants to make, not take. You don't learn how to take money on this show, only how to make it. Then you will want to master the spirituality of money. And uh, no better way to do that than with a book called Business Secrets from the Bible. That's right. Spiritual Success Strategies for Financial Abundance. It's uh, one of our favorite books. Uh, Susan Lappin and I love this book. Uh, It's called Business Secrets from the Bible, Spiritual Success Strategies for Financial Abundance. Um, Some of what I've been talking with you about today is found in this book. Uh, The book is, in fact, 40 specific strategies. Um, Some of them are entitled things like how you feel about yourself is how others will see you. Uh, Making money is a spiritual activity. Uh, Become a people person. Each and every one of us is in business and should act like a business professional. I'm sure you recognize the titles of some of these chapters from things I've been talking about today. Become strongly, even radically open to new directions, soft sounds and faint footsteps. Do not let your fear conquer you. Press on. And so on. A total of 40 strategies what I call 40 spiritual success strategies that contribute to your financial abundance. So the book is called Business Secrets from the Bible. And for listeners of this show, for passengers on this flight, uh, it is available at a special price at rabbidaniellappin.com. So go to the store at our website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Uh, you can also reach that at uh, the URL, uh, which is uh, youneedarabbi.com. That's right, youneedarabbi.com, and that'll bring you over to rabbidaniellappin.com. Go to the store and look for the book, Business Secrets from the Bible. Now, you might be one of those people that really enjoys audio books. You like listening to a book. It works better with you there for you than reading a book. I myself have become an enormous fan of that because there are times where I'm in the car or I might be exercising. And, uh, and by the way, while we're at it, not every MP3 player is waterproof. Yes, that's right. Not every MP3 player is waterproof, but you can get housings for your MP3 player or for your phone that that are waterproof, so never fear. You can listen to books while you're doing other things like swimming, exercising, uh, commuting, traveling. Uh, On an airplane, I love listening to a book in a car. Love it. And so you can also uh, go to my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, go to the store, and you will find Business Secrets from the Bible available in a beautiful, audible form. And we get it to you, and there you go. You can listen to it being read. Um, it's not being read by me, but it's being read by a professional reader. I, in hindsight, I feel bad that I did not read it, but I just didn't have the many, many hours it was going to take to do so. But at any rate, it's very well read, and you will be able to master 40 spiritual success strategies for financial abundance. As I said, uh, trying to understand money without understanding the spiritual foundations on which it's built, 
trying to make money without understanding the spiritual relationship that all of us, every human being has with money, you're handicapping yourself. Why would you do that? It doesn't make sense. So either you or somebody you care about needs the book Business Secrets from the Bible. And I have no hesitation in fairly urgently and aggressively encouraging you to get it because I know you're going to thank me, not blame me. It's as simple as that, like everybody else. And uh, hundreds of thousands of people have read it and benefited from it in terms of putting to work these 40 spiritual success strategies for financial abundance. That's right. That is part of ancient Jewish wisdom. So, uh, friends, we are approaching the end of our allotted time together for today. I really appreciate you being part of the show. Love hearing from you. So, another thing you can do at the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, is go to the Contact Us tab, where it's About Us and then Contact Us, and shoot us a letter. Love reading what you... Above all, I love reading the many letters from people telling me how you have put into practice the principles from Business Secrets from the Bible. I particularly love that, and uh, I have many, many, many such letters. Thank you, each and every one of you who has written. It adds greatly to the quality of my life, as I know the book will add to the quality of yours. So uh, until next week, I am your rabbi, wishing you a week of good times with your faith, with your family, with your friendships, and of course, with your finances. God bless.